Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program. Nen wasn't really my granny, but I only found that out when I was 24 and she was well into her 80s. My real granny died after giving birth to my mother in 1915, and that left my poor grandfather, Tom Keegan, shattered with a young family to raise. They were tumultuous times. Tom was a Gaelic leaguer and a member with his brothers of the Irish Volunteers. The following year, his brother Eddie was shot through the lung in the Easter Rising and fired from his job in the Irish Times. It all became too much for Tom, and he sent each child for care to a relation. My mum was sent to her grandmother's home, where a few years later she caught the Spanish flu, so-called. Don't tell me you're going to leave me now, was all her stricken father could say. But nobody in the family died, and suddenly everything got very much better. A wily parish priest told Tom he had found the perfect wife for him, an elegant lady with a lovely humorous temperament named Alice from Hoth. Her father, who rejoiced in the name Napoleon McKenney, had owned the Royal Hotel there, but he was busy drinking himself and the family out of it. Um, Alice had been to a posh Loretto school where they played cricket, and she needed a good husband, and Tom was surely the man. It all worked out perfectly. The children all came home and they soon came to love Alice as a mother. And she made each of them the food they liked and soon another girl was born to the happy couple. There was only one complication. Tom had been one of the Hoth gunrunners. He sent his six daughters to Skullvrida, the first Gael skull for girls, where they grew ever more independent under the inspiration of Louise Gavin Duffy. Eventually, they formed the nucleus of Celtic, a very successful camogie team. But their new mother was an unrepentant monarchist. Somehow, they all agreed to disagree, and never was a crossword exchanged. During my childhood years, my granny Nan began to post me all the two miles from Marino to Clontarf, a children's magazine called Look and Learn. And this would allow her to test my knowledge of English kings and queens, I wasn't too interested, but of course I played along. And it was a great use when I went to Trinity. One year when I visited her home, she brought me out to the coal house, no longer a gun depository, and with a wicked wink, she handed me a cricket bat, prompting my lifelong adoration of the game. But her monarchist tendencies came to a climax every Christmas day. All of the family, now with the next generation of children, assembled for her wonderful meal. But before we could sit at the table, the great moment was always preceded by Nen shushing everyone to listen to an address to country and commonwealth by the then young English queen, Elizabeth. Nen used to get so stressed that the inexperienced monarch would fluff a line that she invariably sat down in her favorite chair and smoked her one cigarette of the year. Her hands would tremble as she listened, and the cigarette ash would grow so long 
that eventually it fell into the one glass of sherry she drank every year. She would finally gulp the whole lot back and say with relief, she did that very well, and then the sumptuous meal was served. Perhaps the smoking was done out of a displaced anxiety, out of coordinating a meal for so many, but I never thought so. She really wanted a royal triumph, and I found it personally hilarious to see all those Kamogi champions kept at bay, silent and respectful, through this whole performance. Then, when it had ended, one of my aunts would quietly switch the radio or the television off. In the week before each Christmas, Nen went on a royal progress through Merino Mart, demanding what she called her Christmas box from each shop proprietor. And she always got one. She brought me on one of these expeditions, confiding that she had only been once to the city centre, which was all of two miles away from Merino, and that for a performance of the Abbey Theatre's first version of The Plough and the Stars in 1926. Her family members, all the Keegans, hated it, Nen included, because they felt that O'Casey was mocking esteemed Northside neighbours like Fluther Good. In 1976, I invited Nen to the 50th anniversary production of the play. I thought her take would be interesting. Siobhan McKenna played brilliantly the loyalist Bessie Burgess, and when she died near the climax of the play, shot by a random bullet, there was an absolute silence in the Abbey Auditorium as Bessie lay dead on the floor. But Nen suddenly broke that silence with her penetrating falsetto. She did that very well! <laughs> I could sense the irritation all around us, and I could have sworn that that great actress half opened an eye to see whether she could spot the culprit. I had intended taking Nen to meet the cast. After all, she'd seen the original Abbey production and would have been interesting on the comparison. But she had already had her say, so instead, as quickly as possible, I drove her back to the political sanctuary of Merino. Nen has long ago left us, but her words echoed in my head when they recently buried the English Queen, by then exactly the same age that Nen was when she died. And watching the well-ordered rituals, I thought of how she would have relished them. A few weeks later, when Ireland outplayed England in a game of cricket, I wondered what Nen would have said about that. Probably, they did that very well too. misty-eyed at the mention of Christmas. I'm not one of them. I don't feel the need of it. I like the deep midwinter. I like curling inwards on dark nights. I like a bit of quiet as the year slows towards its turn. Christmas I could do without. 
It's a festival of things nobody likes. There's nobody who really likes Brussels sprouts. <laughs> no one can honestly say that wine is better drunk hot with orange slices and cloves. <laughs> and I don't for a minute believe that anyone in all honesty loves turkey. Here's the thing. I know I'm not alone. We're the alley cats of the season, a secret Christmas resistance, a tribe of festive naysayers. We seek each other out, making common cause by saying the unsayable, because what's not to like about Christmas? It's a celebration of happy families, a feast of warm houses and full larders and conviviality, a frenzy of gift buying and giving. But remember, as Jane Eyre so wisely said, the shadows are just as important as the light. If you're prone to melancholy as I am, you can't help but see the shadows. The bright lights of Christmas pick out all the world's flaws like dandruff at a disco. <laughs> Grief, loneliness, want, all suddenly visible to the naked eye. Christmas is open heart surgery for the soul. The shopping streets are its operating theatre, with our most tender feelings, all that love, all that desire, exposed for everyone to see. It doesn't help that we're addicted to the notion of perfection, the perfectly chosen gift, the perfectly shaped tree, the perfectly cooked Christmas dinner, and all that expectation dangling over a gaping void of disappointment if it falls short. It was way easier when standards were lower. When I was growing up, Santa didn't bother to wrap presents. His supply chains were unreliable. He might leave a note explaining why he'd left you the Barbie bath instead of Barbie's horse. The Wham album instead of the Who. Santa's presents often arrived without batteries and you had to wait 24 hours for the newsagent to open before you could use your new Walkman. Some things were lost in translation. Like the year I asked for a baby doll and was horrified to find when I stripped off the baby's clothes that it was a boy baby. <laughs> My mother whisked it off to the kitchen with a look of grim determination on her face and came back two minutes later Problem miraculously solved. <laughs> it's hardly surprising, from a feast to celebrate the birth of a baby to a virgin mother, that Christmas continues to demand miracles of women. In our grandmother's day, the practice of bringing in the Christmas started early in the year. A few pennies were diverted from the housekeeping money to start a store of dried fruit and nuts for the pudding. Now, bringing in the Christmas involves stocking up on selection boxes and tins of fancy biscuits and Christmas crackers and new pyjamas. And the worst of it is that you have nobody but yourself to blame because you made all these things a tradition. And Christmas won't be the same if any of them are forgotten. Times change, but the pressure on women remains. Who are you going to this year? Or oh, is it you doing it? And how many are you having? <laughs> it's a miracle if there's no row over whose turn it is to host it 
and who goes to who, and who can't be left alone, and who has the potential to wreck it if they're invited, and who will wreck it if they're not invited. <laughs> Covid is the ghost of Christmas past, but there's that part of you that hankers after the quiet of it. <laughs> This year, there's no getting out of it. Before you know it, you're going to be standing at the kitchen sink on Christmas Eve, topping and tailing those Brussels sprouts that nobody's going to eat. But it's at this precise moment that you will catch a glimpse of your reflection in the window and see your life from the outside in, like a Christmas card, all warm, twinkling lights and happy Christmas faces. And that's when the person on the radio will play the one piece of Christmas music you actually like. A piece so beautiful, even you will have tears in your eyes listening to it. With a bit of luck, this blessed wave of goodwill and gratitude might carry you through Christmas Day. It will certainly last while the kids open their Santa presents and the smell of a freshly peeled mandarin orange pulled from the bottom of a Christmas stocking takes you back to your own childhood. You might even manage to stay on the Christmas surfboard through the table setting and the gravy making and the eating of the turkey, which even you have to admit is actually delicious. But by the time the plates have been cleared and the Brussels sprouts are wrapped in cling film and stored in the fridge, you will be well and truly over it. The wave breaks leaving behind a kitchen full of washing up. There's no room in the green bin for all the wrapping paper. Only the plain biscuits are left in the tin. But don't despair, because the best bit is still to come. The bit when you crawl into bed on Christmas night and count the sleeps until next Christmas. <laughs> Quarter to twelve on a Friday night, and the phone rings. Dad! I know by the tone of her voice that something is up. Can you help? The daughter had gone up from our house in County Down to Derry for the weekend to stay with her nana and granda. And a bat had somehow got into the house. So where are you? In the living room. Where's the bat? Don't know. <laughs> Not looking. Well, you'll be grand. And then you have that feeling 
She's 90 miles away, and she won't actually be grand. She needs you. And who would you ring at midnight on a Friday night to find a bat? Your da. <laughs> so I pulled on a jumper and set off. And that's what you do. There's no point in fussing. Just go and do and fix. It's nice to be needed. I mean, I've never been that practical, handy dad, to be honest. So she'd rung and said, the shower was leaking, or the heating had packed in, we'd all have been stuffed. But a bat, I can do. I mean, I'm not afraid of them. I know they won't suck my blood, and I know they won't get tangled in my hair. All I need to do is find this one, put it in a box, release it, and come home. And so, filled with a sense of purpose and paternal usefulness, I headed out into the night and up the road to Derry. Our three all fled the nest this year, and it happened quickly. I don't think I'd thought it through, despite people saying, oh, your house will be quiet this winter. But we planned ahead subconsciously, looking at the prospectus of autumn evening classes. My wife decided to do a DIY class, and I took up Pilates and Arabic. Pilates to get a bit fitter, and Arabic to just open a window on another world. Two things I'd never done before. Pilates was an eye-opener. Uh, 14 men in a room, huffing and puffing, trying to do that cat with the back up and the dog with the back down, or maybe it was a cow, I'm not sure. And the only thing punctuating the silence, apart from Shania Twain on the CD, was the odd cracking bone or unintended toot of wind. <laughs> but Arabic was brilliant. Marhaba, Anna Ismi John, Ahlan was Ahlan. It was fascinating to hear students from all over the world and how they found themselves learning Arabic in Belfast. Some doing a master's in politics, planning to change the world, some others heading to the Palestinian territories to study conflict. But when it came to my turn, and the reason why I'm in this little classroom every Tuesday evening, all I could say was, my children have left home. <laughs> and it felt a bit feeble, to be honest. But the Arabic, the DIY, and the Pilates was all distraction from a suddenly quiet house. And you know what? We've done okay. Realizing you don't have to be going and doing and talking and rushing all the time. And there is absolutely no shame in kicking your shoes off at seven o'clock and sitting down on the sofa for the evening. Real birds leave the nest when they're two or three weeks old. And let's be honest, like our kids, all they do while they're in the nest is sit there and have food carried to them in a warm and safe <laughs> environment. And nature's way and the reality of life is that it's our job as parents to teach the kids not to need you anymore. But I think I miss being needed. Anyway, I finally arrived up to Derry on my mercy mission about two in the morning. I spent an hour and a half looking for little Pipistrellus 
Pipistrellis in every room on three floors and in every pair of curtains and in every empty shoe, while Granda slept peacefully and Nana and the youngest daughter, aged only 17, I should say, barricaded themselves in the living room and calmed their nerves with some Prosecco. And no bat was found. Well, not by me, anyway. I jumped in the Batmobile, drove straight back home, they polished off the Prosecco, and of course, next day, the brother-in-law rocks up and finds a bat inside 10 minutes. Of course he does. <laughs> Very soon, Le Coudujay, inshallah, our chicks will be back in the nest for Christmas. Nana and Granda both passed away this year, so it won't be quite the same, but we'll put up some decorations, we'll get together, and there will be laughter. And God forgive us, we might even switch the heat on. <laughs> the County Down is a song by renowned songwriter Tommy Sands, and it tells of someone from here thinking of a loved one far away in London town. It's a parent and child for me. When evening's falling, you'll hear me calling. Come on home now to the County Down. keeps calling and you hear you're near it's not the leaves or the whispering breezes it's me that's calling you back again It's always struck me that the characters in Charles Dickens' stories had the right attitude towards Christmas in that they never seemed to get stressed by the coming of the big day. You never read about a Dickens character wandering around HMV the day before Christmas, <laughs> muttering madly to himself and promising that next year he was going to Lanzarote <laughs> until the whole thing was over. Bob Cratchit, a real showboater, actually worked until seven o'clock on Christmas Eve, and only then did he decide to get a tree and a plum pudding. I mean, the nonchalance of the man. <laughs> In our house, there's never been room for such grandiose displays of unconcern. Christmas is a serious, serious business and is planned with military-style precision, knowing as we do from bitter experience all of the things that can go wrong. It was the start of December 2014. I was in the attic taking down our very tasteful decorations, the rock and roll Rudolph who plays the drums, <laughs> and the geographically confused polar bear with the beret and lederhosen <laughs> who sings Feliz Navidad. <laughs> when I became aware of a faint 
but persistent buzzing noise above my head. It turned out to be a fly. And I remember thinking it was a bit unusual to see a fly at that time of year. What I discovered over the course of the following hour was that he was far from alone. <laughs> I continued taking down the decorations, the toilet seat cover of Santa's face and <laughs> the nativity snow globe that featured the baby Jesus being born in Bethlehem in the middle of a blizzard. <laughs> Every time I returned to the attic, I noticed that there were more and more flies buzzing around and slamming themselves against my face. By the time I'd taken down the last of the decorations, uh, Santa Claus, who pulls down his trousers to show you his bum, <laughs> there were 40 or 50 of the things. And I went downstairs to break the news to my wife that there was something dead in our attic. <laughs> An hour later, my nerves steeled, thanks to a brandy large enough to disinfect a hospital. <laughs> I climbed back up the ladder, then spent 20 minutes crawling around on my hands and knees, searching for what it still sickens me to describe as the host. By that time, the air was thick with the things, thousands and thousands of them, making a collective hum like a lawnmower engine. But try as I did, I couldn't find the dead pigeon or rat or Clydesdale horse <laughs> that was giving life to this plague of Christmas flies. So I went looking for answers on the internet and very quickly discovered that what we had on our hands was an infestation of cluster flies. For those of you who've never had the pleasure, <laughs> cluster flies are disgusting things. They get into the attic spaces and make a home for themselves in the fiberglass insulation where they breed all summer long and spend the winter hibernating until they're disturbed by a homeowner poking around in the attic for a life-size Darth Vader dressed as Santa Claus <laughs> who says, Luke, I felt your presence. <laughs> Happily, I discovered there was a quick and easy way to get rid of cluster flies. An online pest control company was offering a simple-to-use smoke bomb <laughs> that was guaranteed to wipe them all out in one felt swoop. I ordered 10. <laughs> they were delivered on Christmas Eve, just as we were awaiting the arrival of our Christmas guests. I went straight up to the attic, lit the fuses on the 10 bombs, and <laughs> let the insecticide fumes do their worst. Once the smoke had cleared, I planned to return with the Dyson to hoover up the dead. <laughs> Crucially, what I'd forgotten was that in our attic, we had an uncovered water tank. I remember this fact when I turned on the taps in the ensuite bathroom <laughs> that our guests were going to use, and the water that poured out of them was treacle thick with flies. It was like something from a Stephen King movie. 
and the kind of thing that was liable to spoil the Christmas cheer. <laughs> the phone rang. Our guests were on the way. And so began the most miserable Christmas Eve of my life. <laughs> I took a bucket and a sieve <laughs> and returned to the attic to face the task of fishing hundreds and hundreds of dead cluster flies out of the water tank. I knelt on a floor strewn with insect bodies and went about the revolting task, panning the dead into a bucket, while downstairs the festive playlist on my iPod was somehow stuck on Michael Bublé, <laughs> singing, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. I thought, not in this house, Bublé. <laughs> not in this house. 20 minutes into the job, something very unforeseen happened. A group of flies who had somehow survived the initial chemical assault woke up. They organized themselves into a team of Avengers and began dive-bombing me, several hundred of them. While I continued to sieve through the water, straining the bodies of their dead friends from the tank, and Buble prattled on endlessly about candy canes and silver lanes that glow. After two hours, the water was finally clear, and I surrendered the attic to the surviving flies. As I did, I heard a car pull up outside, and a burst of excited laughter was all it took to restore my Christmas spirit. But next year, I promised, I was definitely going to Lanzarote until the whole thing was over. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas Take a look at the five and ten. It's glistening once again. Candy canes and silver lanes that glow. Merry Christmas. St. Nick's in the Liberties. I still go, Da. Every December, I take time out from the Lula parties and pack shops. Go back to your home turf and parish church. I cross Francis Street and hear your voice in me head. You'll always find freedom in the Liberties and Christmas in St. Nick's. Inside the church is ruby, warm and quiet. The icon of St. Nicholas of Meyer looks very solemn. Not a bit jolly. And yet, all I can do is smile. Smile as I watch small children eye up the big statue in red robes. 
Remember what you once told me, Da? Santa will look after all the presents, but it would do us no harm to kneel down and say a prayer while we're here. I bow my head and say a Hail Mary at the manger and light a candle in honour of our dear Saint Nicholas. The church choir rehearses music while I bask in candlelight and the music of long ago, just now, Christmas carols. I still go, Da. Every December, I take time out from the Lula parties and pack shops to find Christmas in St. Nick's in the Liberties. Thank you very much. That was Sunday Miscellany live at Christmas with the RTE Concert Orchestra, recorded recently at the National Concert Hall. The scripts were A Child's Christmas in Merino by Declan Kybird. Bringing in the Christmas was by Kathleen McMahon. Back to the Nest by John Toll. Nightmare Before Christmas by Paul Howard. And Saint Nick's in the Liberties, a poem by Rachel Hegarty. The music performed by the RTE Concert Orchestra under conductor Gavin Maloney was... The Merino Waltz by John Sheehan, arranged by John Tate and featuring Mia Cooper on solo violin. In the Bleak Winter, Midwinter by Gustav Holst, arranged by David Downs and featuring Una Walsh on solo harp. The County Down by Cullum Sands, performed by True, Donald Kearney, Zach Troughton and Michael Mormike. And it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas, arranged by Paul Campbell and performed by Conor McKeown with the RTE Concert Orchestra, conducted by Gavin Maloney. You can hear more from that Christmas Miscellany event on Christmas morning, just after the 9am news. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon and the producer is Sarah Binchy. To listen back to this week's programme, go to the RTE Radio Player or rte.ie forward slash radio one forward slash Sunday hyphen miscellany. And you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter and all the usual podcast platforms. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.